uh, I think most people in evangelicalism, when they see a squirrel, thinks of Gene Clyde. It's really strange when you think about it. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. Can you hear me now? <laughs> Welcome to the Piney Woods. I am your squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. Huge apology to anyone yesterday who tried to watch the live stream because there was no sound. <laughs> Every once in a while, my soundboard forgets, or my broadcast software forgets my soundboard and I have to reconnect them and it seems to happen once a month or so and normally I catch it but yesterday you'll remember I was saying that I was very tired and very sleepy and I just did not do my due diligence in checking all of my uh, equipment before beginning the podcast yesterday so the live stream was without sound however Head on over to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, wherever you get your podcasts, and you can subscribe to Squirrel, excuse me, to Squirrel Chatter and get the audio edition, which worked just fine yesterday because I'm recording audio separately from the video, so that was not a problem at all. <laughs> But uh, yeah, the, the live stream had no sound yesterday, so I apologize for that. So um, welcome back. Good to see everybody. This is Squirrel Chatter, a podcast dedicated primarily to the public reading of scriptures and secondarily to my thoughts on various topics of the day. And Squirrel Chatter is a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. You can head on over to christianpodcastcommunity.org. There are over 50 great curated, doctrinally sound, entertaining, and edifying podcasts over there. Go find one. There's tons of good stuff to listen to. Um, uh, I, I would have to commend uh, Eki and Nathaniel for the Truth Be Known podcast. They have just, actually they haven't finished yet, I don't think. They're finishing next week. But they're going through the Ten Commandments. And one per episode, and that's been a really good study. So if that's something you'd like to, to listen to, you know, go ahead and give that a try. Take care of it. It's good stuff. Um, let's see, other good stuff coming down the pipe. Uh, next month, there's a uh, cessationist conference over at uh, Kootenai Bible Church in Kootenai, Idaho, Sandpoint area, that uh, I'm planning on heading over to. The speakers are going to be Andrew Rappaport, Dan Phillips, uh, Jim Osmond. I don't have the flyer in front of me, so I'm trying to remember who all is there. And I'm really heading over to, to see Dan Phillips because he and I have been corresponding for years and we have never met in person. And so I, I'd like to go over because it's just three hours away. And uh, um, so I, I'm planning on going over there so I can at least make his acquaintance because, as I said, we've been corresponding for many years and I've greatly appreciated his ministry, learned a lot from him. And so, you know, we've talked on the phone, we've exchanged emails, we, we, we have, uh, you know, text messaging back and forth, but we've never actually met. 
So I'm looking forward to that. Mm. But it's a cessationist conference. And if you don't know what cessationism is, then look out the com- look uh, look up the conference and go attend. Um, I won't say anything more about it. All right. Well, our scripture reading for today, as we continue to read through the entire Bible in the Legacy Standard Bible Translation this year, um, our scripture readings today are Second Kings twenty four and twenty five, Second Chronicles thirty six. Psalm 126, and 1 Peter 3. We are finishing week 41. I've already checked it off on the checklist. Week 41, we just got, uh, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. 11 weeks left in the year. And we will have read through the entire Bible here on Squirrel Chatter. So I... I uh, I've been enjoying it. I hope you have too. Um, and I said, continue to be in prayer for me because I'm trying to plan what we're, how we're going to do this going forward because I'm not going to do another full read-through of the Bible on the podcast next year. Um, I'd like to do something. It's what's been really tough for a preacher, and preachers out there that are listening will understand. I've just been reading the Scripture. And there are times when you just want to stop and talk about what it says. And the format this year has not been allowing that. And so I'm trying to think about doing a chapter a day with, you know, uh, uh, some devotional insights or historic insights or theological insights in a passage without doing a full sermon on the passage. But read like a chapter a day and hit the high points um, in a in a you know brief study each morning. But I'm not sure I've thought about, well, I could do uh, like the minor prophets in chronological order, or I could do one of the major prophets, or I could do, you know, the Torah, or you know, do Paul's epistles. So, uh, if you have any ideas on that, what would you like to hear? What would you like me to to go through like that next year? Drop me a line at squirrelchatter at protonmail.com or uh, find me on social media and leave me a note. Um, I'd love to see your ideas. Like I said, I'm still trying to think about what we're going to do starting next year um, or for next year. <laughs> and, of course, it is Friday today, and that means that it's Federalist Friday, and we are going through the Federalist Papers which, if you recall, are the series of articles written by the framers of the Constitution, specifically uh, Alexander Hamilton and John Jay, written for the, to promote the ratification of the Constitution. And we're reading these because there, there just seems to be an ignorance in America about our governing documents and how our government was designed to function. And the Federalist Papers are explaining the Constitution and urging its ratification. And we are going to read Federalist number 8 today. And again, I'm reading these without offering commentary. Um, After we've gone through all of the Federalist Papers, 
then I want to go back and go through the Constitution again with, because we read through the Constitution, but I want to go back and go through it again with discussion of what the different articles say and mean, drawing from what we've read in the Federalist Papers. So that's kind of the plan going forward on that. And Thursdays, I guess we'll just talk about where we're going. Thursdays are still going to be Theology Thursday. We are um, working our way through the 1689. We've got a long way to go before we finish the 1689. And then when we're done with the 1689, we'll take another doctrinal statement and look through it clause by clause. And there, there we do have some discussion. So that's been a... Uh, a fun study for me. I'm thinking we might do the uh, 39 articles of the Anglican Church or, you know, something more modern. Um, but uh, I like to stay with the historical documents because I am a history nerd and that's just the way it is. Now, being a history nerd, you know that I like the old words, and we've been using the 1552 Book of Common Prayer here on Squirrel Chatter that was authored by Thomas Cranmer in 1552, which is the, 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 it's the second prayer book of Cranmer. The first one, the, the 1548, was kind of rushed out, and it didn't have, it wasn't quite as reformed. But he continued working on it and came out with the 1552, which uh, was the most reformed of the, the Anglican prayer books. Of course, 1555, he was executed by Mary Tudor. And when Elizabeth came to the throne, she had a slightly modified prayer book from the one that Cranmer had drawn, which was kind of a compromise between the the reformed position that Cranmer was taking and the Anglo-Catholic position that some were urging her to take. Um, but even then, it was more reformed than the 1662, the prayer book of Charles II, which is the current prayer book for the Anglican Church, the, the, the Church of England. Um, but the 1552 is the most reformed, and that's the one we've been using here because I, I very much am a fan of Thomas Cranmer. Having said that, I've been looking a lot at the 2019 Anglican Church in North America prayer book, which goes back to the 1552 in a lot of ways, and I appreciate it very much. So typically we start the day by reading the, the Prayer of Confession from the 1552. But today I want to read the Prayer of Confession from the 2019 Anglican Church of North America. Now if you're familiar with the prayer that we've been using, you will see that this is very, very, very close. Um, just a little modern update in the language. So let us humbly confess our sins to Almighty God. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and apart from your grace there is no health in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. 
Restore all those who are penitent according to your promises, declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. So you can see it's very much the same prayer, but it's uh, a much more updated language. And uh, I'm going to stick with the 1552, but I just wanted to point you to that new 2019 Anglican Church in North America prayer book. Um, the Anglican Church in North America, the ACNA uh, in particular, and GAFCON in general, the, the Global, Angle, Angle, Global Anglican Fellowship, the, these are the conservative Anglicans. These are the Bible-believing Anglicans. Now, is there, you know, I would disagree with them entirely on their ecclesiology, and, and they still have some troublesome aspects, by and large, but much better than the Episcopal Church, much better than the Church of England. These are the conservatives that, uh, these are our friends, these are the ones that we should pray for and uh, befriend and wish for their prosperity and may their tribe grow. Um, here in the United States, many of these, many of the Anglican Church of North America congregations split off from the Episcopal Church. Um, when the Episcopal Church started ordaining gay bishops, for example. And so they split off to start their own churches. Um, still being Anglican, still you know holding to the basic Anglican uh, liturgical liturgical worship and and ecclesiology forms and whatnot, but saying, "Hey, we believe the Bible," and getting back to the confession of faith and all that. And because of that, many of them were sued by the Episcopal Church over questions about the church property because the churches were not independent. All of the church properties were deemed to be owned by the Episcopal Church. And there's been multiple lawsuits. Some the ACNA congregations have won and they have gotten their buildings. Others the ACNA congregations have lost and the buildings went back to the Episcopal Church. And so you have churches that had to leave their historic buildings where, you know, that church had been meeting for, you know, sometimes over 100 years. And now they're meeting in school gymnasiums or rented movie theaters because they've lost their building because of this lawsuit, even though, you know, the local church paid to build the building. <laughs> The, the fact is that because of the denominational structure of the Episcopal Church, they've lost their buildings. So pray for these congregations as they continue to try to faithfully worship and serve God. I have friends in the ACNA, and, and I pray for them regularly. Um, and being a historian, I have, there's a lot about the, the ACNA that I, I appreciate, and a lot about the Anglican tradition that I appreciate. And remember... As an English-speaking Baptist, we came out of the Anglican, the Reformed Anglican Church, the, the English Reformation. 
The English Reformation led to the Church of England, it led to the Puritans, and it led to the English Baptists. So we don't trace our roots back to continental Europe Anabaptists. We trace our roots back to the English Reformation. So this is our heritage as well. So we need to, to pray for them as we do. Now, let's pray for the reading of the Word. Blessed Lord, who hast caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So, 2 Kings 24. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And Yahweh sent against him marauding bands of Chaldeans, marauding bands of Arameans, marauding bands of Moabites, and marauding bands of Ammonites. So he sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of Yahweh, which he had spoken by the hand of his slave, the prophets. Surely at the command of Yahweh it came upon Judah to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood which he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. Now Yahweh was not willing to pardon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiakim his son became king in his place. And the king of Egypt did not go out of his land again, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem, and the city came under siege. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. Then Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his commanders and his officials. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. And he brought him out from and he brought out from there all the treasures of the house of Yahweh, the treasures of the king's house, and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of Yahweh, just as Yahweh had spoken. Then he took away into exile all Jerusalem and all the commanders and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None was left except the poorest people of the land. So he took Jehoiakim away into exile to Babylon. So the, also the king's mother and the king's wives and his officials and the leading men of the land he led away into exile from, ba from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now all the valiant men, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the smiths, 1,000, all mighty who could wage war, and these the king of Babylon brought into exile to Babylon. Then the king of Babylon made his uncle, Madaniah, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. 
And his mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For through the anger for through the anger of Yahweh this came about in Jerusalem and Judah, until he cast them out from his presence, and Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Now in the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his military force, against Jerusalem. And he camped against it and built a siege wall all around it. So the city came under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so strong in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city was broken into, and all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls out besides the king's garden, though the Chaldeans were all around the city. And they went by way of the Arabah. But the military force of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his military force was scattered from him. Then they seized the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they spoke their judgment on him. And they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then he blinded the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon." Now on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nabuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of Yahweh, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Even every great house he burned with fire. So all the military force of the Chaldeans, who were with the captain of the guard, tore down the walls around Jerusalem. Then the rest of the people who were left in the city and the defectors who had defected to the king of Babylon and the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took away into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. Now the bronze pillars which were in the house of Yahweh and the stands and the bronze sea which were in the house of Yahweh, the Chaldeans shattered and carried the bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, the shovels, the snuffers, the spoons, and all the bronze vessels which were used to minister. The captain of the guard also took away the fire pans and the bowls, what was fine gold and what was fine silver. The two pillars, the one sea, and the stands which Solomon had made for the house of Yahweh, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. The height of the one pillar was eighteen cubits, and a bronze capital was on it, the height of the capital was three cubits, with a network and pomegranates on the capital all around, all of bronze. And the second pillar was like these with network. Then the captain of the guard took Saraiah the chief priest and Zephaniah the second priest with the three doorkeepers of the temple. And from the city he took one official who was overseer of the men of war and five of the king's advisors who were found in the city and the scribe of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land, and sixty men of the people of the land who were found in the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and led them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. Then the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah went into exile from its land. Now as for the people who were left in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he appointed Gedaliah, the son of, Ahi of Iakim, the son of Shephan, over them. 
Then all the commanders of the military forces, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah governor. So they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah, namely Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, and Jonathan, the son of Kareah, and Saraiah, the son of Tanhameth, the Netophilite, and Jaazaniah, the son of Maacathite, they and their men. Then Gedaliah swore to them and their men and said to them, Do not be afraid of the servants of the Chaldeans. Live in the land and serve the king, and it will be well with you. But it happened in the seventh month that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishamah, of the royal seed, came with ten men and struck Gedaliah down, so that he died, along with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. Then all the people, both small and great, and the commanders of the military forces arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. Now it happened, in the thirty-seventh year of the exile of Jehoiakim king of Judah, in the twelfth month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he became king, lifted up the head of Jehoiakim king of Judah from prison, and he spoke to him good words, and he set, on his, set his throne above the thrones of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim changed his prison clothes and had his meals in the king's presence continually all the days of his life. And for his allowance, a continual allowance was given him by the king, a portion for each day all the days of his life. And now Second Chronicles 36. Then the people of the land took Joahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in place of his father in Jerusalem. Joahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Then the king of Egypt had him removed in Jerusalem and imposed on the land a fine of 100, of 100 talents of silver and one talent of gold. Then the king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But Necho took Joahaz, his brother, and brought him to Egypt. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh his God. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him and bound him with bronze chains to lead him off to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also brought some of the articles from the house of Yahweh to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations which he did and what was found against him, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiakim his son became king in his place. Jehoiakim was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And at the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the valuable articles of the house of Yahweh and made his relative Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of Yahweh. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear allegiance by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people 
were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of Yahweh, which he had set apart as holy in Jerusalem. And Yahweh, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by the hand of his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his habitation. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of Yahweh arose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their choice men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on choice man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. And all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of Yahweh, and the treasures of the king and of his officials, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and tore down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. And those who had escaped from the sword, he took away into exile to Babylon. And they were slaves to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had made up for its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were fulfilled. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to complete the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he had a proclamation passed through his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may Yahweh his God be with him, and let him go up. Now Psalm 126. A Song of Ascents When Yahweh returned the captive ones to Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, Yahweh has done great things for them. Yahweh has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our captivity, O Yahweh, as the streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, carrying his sheaves with him. And now 1 Peter chapter 3. In the same way, you wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, as they observe your pure conduct with fear. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on garments, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible quality of a lowly and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being subject to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children if you do good, not fearing any intimidation. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now to sum up, all of you be like-minded, sympathetic, brotherly, tender-hearted, and humble in spirit, 
not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but giving a blessing instead, for you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their fear, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and fear, having a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will, to will it so, that you suffer for doing good rather than for doing wrong. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring you to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. And now the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now the collect for grace. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, almighty and everlasting God, who has safely brought us to the beginning of this day, defend us in the same with thy mighty power, and grant that this day we fall into no sin, neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings may be ordered by thy governance to do always that is righteous in thy sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. Federalist number eight. Uh, excuse me just a minute. Wet the throat with a little bit of coffee. This is written by Alexander Hamilton. Uh, it was published in the New York Packet on November 20th, 1787. And the title is The Consequences of Hostilities Between the States. Now, just to mention, I said it's written by Alexander Hamilton. These were published, all of them published anonymously under the name Publius. So that's why each one is signed Publius. I'm sure I mentioned that before, but I just want to mention that again. But this particular uh, paper was written by Alexander Hamilton. The title again is The Consequences of Hostilities Between the States. 
to the people of the state of New York. Assuming it, therefore, as an established truth that the several states, in case of disunion or such combinations of them as might happen to be formed out of the wreck of the general confederacy, would be subject to those vicissitudes of peace and war, of friendship and enmity with each other, which have fallen to the lot of all neighboring nations not united under one government. Let us enter into a concise detail of some of the situations that would attend such a situation. War between the states in the first period of their separate existence would be accompanied with much greater distresses than is common, commonly in those countries where regular military establishments have long obtained. The disciplined armies always kept on foot on the continent of Europe, though they bear a malignant aspect to liberty and economy, have, notwithstanding, been productive of the signal advantage of rendering sudden conquests impractical and of preventing that rapid desolation, which used to mark the progress of war prior to their introduction. The art of fortifications has contributed to the same ends. The nations of Europe are encircled with chains of fortified places, which mutually obstruct invasion. Campaigns are wasted in reducing two or three frontier garrisons to gain admittance into an enemy's country. Similar impediments occur at every step to exhaust the strength and delay the progress of an invader. Formerly, an invading army would penetrate to the heart of a neighboring country almost as soon as intelligence of its approach could be received. But now, a comparatively small force of disciplined troops acting on the defense with the aid of posts is able to impede and finally to frustrate the enterprises of one of the more, one much more considerable the history of war in that quarter of the globe is no longer a history of nations subdued and empires overturned, but of towns taken and retaken, of battles that decide nothing, of retreats more beneficial than victories, of much effort and little acquisition. In this country, the scene would be altogether reversed. The jealousy of military establishments would postpone them as long as possible. The want of fortifications, leaving the frontiers of one state open to another, would facilitate inroads. The populous states would, with little difficulty, overrun their less populous neighbors. Conquest, conquest would be as easy to be made as difficult to be retained. War, therefore, would be desultory and predatory. Plunder and devastations ever march in the train of irregulars. The calamities of individuals would make the principal figure in the events which would characterize our military exploits. This picture is not too highly wrought, though I confess I would not long to it would not long not long remain a just one. Safety from external danger is the most powerful director of national conduct. Even the ardent love of liberty will, after a time, give way to its dictates. The violent destruction of life and property incident to war, the continual effort and alarm attendant on such a state of continual danger will compel nations the most attached to liberty to resort for repose and security to institutions which have a tendency to destroy their civil and political rights. To be more safe, they at length will become willing to run the risk of being less free. The institutions chiefly alluded to are standing armies, and the correspondent appendages of military establishments, standing armies, it is said, 
are not provided against in the new Constitution, and it is therefore inferred that they may exist under it. This objection will be fully examined in its proper place, and it will be shown that the only natural precaution which could have been taken on this subject has been taken, and a much better one than is to be found in any constitution that has been heretofore framed in America, most of which contain no guard at all on this subject. Their existence, however, from the very terms of the proposition, is, at most, problematical and uncertain. But standing armories, it may be replied, must inevitably result from a dissolution of the Confederacy. Frequent war and constant apprehension, which require a state of as constant preparation, will infallibly produce them. The weaker states or confederacies would first have recourse to them to put themselves upon an equality with their more potent neighbors. They would endeavor to supply the inferiority of population and resources by a more regular and effective system of defense, by disciplined troops, and by fortifications. They would, at the same time, be necessitated to strengthen the executive arm of government, in doing which their constitutions would require a progressive direction toward monarchy. It is of the nature of war to increase the executive at the expense of the legislative authority. The expedients which have been mentioned would soon give the states or confederacies that made use of them a superiority over their neighbors. Small states or states of less natural strength, under vigorous governments, and with the assistance of disciplined armies, have often triumphed over larger states, or states of greater natural strength, which have been destitute of these advantages. Neither the pride nor the safety of the more important states or confederacies would permit them long to submit to this mortifying and adventurous superiority. They would quickly resort to means similar to those by which it had been effected to reinstate themselves in their lost preeminence. Thus, we should, in a little time, see established in every part of this country the same engines of despotism which have been the scourge of the old world. This, at least would be the natural course of things, and our reasonings will be the more likely to be just in proportion as they are accommodated to this standard. These are not vague inferences drawn from supposed or speculative defects in a constitution, the whole power of which is lodged in the hands of a people or their representatives and delegates, but they are solid conclusions drawn from the natural and necessary progress of human affairs. It may perhaps be asked, by way of objection to this, why did not standing armies spring up out of, the, out of the contentions which so often distracted the ancient republics of Greece? Different answers, equally satisfactory, may be given to this question. The industrious habits of the people of the present day, absorbed in the pursuit of gain and devoted to the improvements of agriculture and commerce, are incompatible with the condition of a nation of soldiers, which was the true condition of the people of those republics. The means of revenue, which have been so greatly multiplied by the increase of gold and silver and of arts of industry and the science of finance, which is the offspring of modern times, concurring with the habits of nations, have produced an entire revolutionary revolution in the system of war and have rendered disciplined armies distinct from the body of citizens the inseparable companions of frequent hostility. There is a wide difference also between the military establishments in a country seldom exposed 
by its situation to internal invasions, as in one which is often subject to them. <coughs> Excuse me. Do not inhale the coffee. There is a low oxygen content in coffee. It is not to be inhaled. The rulers of the former can have a good pretext if they are even so inclined to keep on foot armies so numerous as most of necessity be maintained in the latter. These armies being, in the first case, rarely, if at all, called into activity for interior defense, the people are in no danger of being broken into military subordination. The laws are not accustomed to relaxations in favor of military ex ex exigencies. The civil state remains in full vigor, neither, neither corrupted nor confounded with the principles or propensities of the other state. The smallness of the army renders the natural strength of the community an overmatch for it, and the citizens, not habituated to look up to the military power for protection or to submit to its oppressions, neither love nor fear the soldiery. They view them with a spirit of jealous acquiescence in a, in a necessary evil and stand ready to resist a power which they suppose may be exerted in the prejudice of, these, of their rights. The army under such circumstances may usefully aid the magistrate in suppression to suppress a small faction or an occasional mob or insurrection, but it will be unable to enforce encroachments against the united efforts of the great body of people. In a country in the predicament last described, the country of all this happens, the contrary of all this happens. The perpetual menacings of danger oblige the government to always be prepared to repel it. Its armies must be numerous enough for instant defense. The continual necessity for their service, services enhances the importance of the soldier and proportionally degrades the condition of the citizen. The military state becomes elevated above the civil. The inhabitants of territories, often the theater of war, are unavoidably subjected to frequent infringements on their rights which serve to weaken their sense of those rights, and by degrees the people are brought to consider the soldiery not only as their protectors, but as their superiors. The transition from this disposition to that of considering them masters is neither remote nor difficult, but it is very difficult to prevail upon a people under such impressions to make a bold or effectual resistance to usurpations supported by military power. The kingdom of Great Britain falls within the first description. An insular situation and a powerful marine guarding it in a great measure against the possibility of foreign invasion supersede the necessity of a numerous army within the kingdom. A sufficient force to make head against a sudden descent till the, mafia, till the militia could have, have time to rally and embody is all that has been deemed requisite. No motive of national policy has demanded, nor would public opinion have tolerated, a larger number of troops upon its domestic establishment. There has been, for a long time past, little room for the operation of other causes, which have been enumerated as the consequence of internal war. This particular felicity of situation has, in a great degree, contributed to preserve the liberty which that country to this day enjoys, in spite of the prevalent venality and corruption. If, on the contrary, Britain had been situated on the continent and had been compelled, as she would have been, by that situation to make her military establishments at home coextensive with those of the other great powers of Europe, 
She, like them, would, in all probability, be, at this day, a victim to the absolute power of a single man. Tis possible, though not easy, that the people of that island may be enslaved from other causes, but it cannot be by the prowess of an army so considerable as that which has been usually kept within the kingdom. If we are wise enough to preserve the Union, we may, for ages, enjoy an advantage similar to that of an isolated situation. Europe is at a great distance from us. Her colonies and our vicinity will be likely to continue too much disproportioned in strength to be able to give us any dangerous annoyance. Extensive military establishments cannot, in this position, be necessary to our security. But if we should be disunited, the integral parts should either remain separated or, which is most probable, should be thrown together into two or three confederacies, we should be, in a short course of time, in the predicament of the continental powers of Europe. Our liberties would be a, would be a prey to the means of defending ourselves against the ambition and jealousy of each other. This is an idea not superficial or futile, but solid and weighty. It deserves the most serious and mature considerations of every prudent and honest man of whatever party. If such men will make a firm and solemn pause and meditate dispassionately on the importance of this interesting idea, if they will contemplate it in all its attitudes and trace it to all its consequences, they will not hesitate to part with trivial objections to a constitution the rejection of which would, in all probability, put a final period to the Union. The airy phantoms that flit before the distempered imaginations of some of its adversaries would quickly give place to the more substantial forms of dangers, real, certain, and formal. Publius. All right, well, that's Squirrel Chatter for today. It's Friday. That means Sunday's coming. Make sure you're in church this Sunday. Go and worship with the saints. Until I see you on Monday, remember to do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. And whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. We'll see you again here next week. Take care. God bless. Go to church. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster. 